0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to today's Commonwealth Club presentation. My name is Dr. Patrick O'Reilly. I'm chair of the psychology forum at the Commonwealth Club, and I will be the moderator for today's event. Also, the Commonwealth Club Gala Gala is coming up on October 16th, and you can get more information about it by going on www.commonwealthclub.org. And I'm very pleased to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Don Moore, in his talk on critical thinking and the psychology of confidence. Dr. Moore holds the Lorraine Tyson Mitchell Chair in Leadership at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. His research interests include overconfidence, including when people think they are better than they actually are, when people think they are better than others, and when they are too sure they know the truth. Dr. Moore, incidentally, is only occasionally overconfident. If you have any questions for Dr. Moore, please use the text chat feature, and as time allows, Dr. Moore will answer them at the conclusion of his presentation. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Moore.
0: Thanks, Patrick. It is a great pleasure to be here and an honor to be able to share my work with the audience and with the Commonwealth Club. I want to talk about my research on the psychology of confidence, work I've been doing for the last couple decades, but begin with a story much older than that. In 1878, the great psychologist William James wrote about an alpine adventure. He imagined himself stuck at a spot from which he needed to make a dangerous leap across a crevasse. And he imagined that if... He believed in himself if he had the courage to commit to the act that he would be able to jump farther across the crevasse and would be more likely to make it. He concluded in a situation such as this, I should be a fool not to believe in myself because the success of the act leaping across the crevasse depends upon that faith. There are many Echoes of William James' encouragement to believe in ourselves in books that populate the self help category with wonderful titles such as these. These are books that encourage and empower us. Reading them, you could come away with the impression that your challenge in life is to keep your confidence up, to prove the haters and the doubters wrong, and to believe in yourself against all odds. Nowhere is this message articulated more encouragingly than in a book called The Secret. The Secret advocates the law of attraction, which holds that we attract into our lives those things that we believe in, that we hold most ardently in our thoughts. I want to share with you a clip from the movie based on the book, The Secret. So now you start to have different beliefs, like there is more than enough.
2: The universe, Or you have the belief that everything goes right for me, or
3: you have the belief that I'm not getting older, I'm getting younger. We can create it the
2: way we want it by using the law of attraction. You can break yourself free from hereditary patterns, cultural codes, social beliefs, and prove once and for all power within you is greater than the power that's in you. We may be thinking. Well, that's very nice, but I can't do that. Or she won't let me do that. Or you'll never let me do that. Or I haven't got enough money to do that. Or I'm not strong enough to do that. Or I'm not rich enough to do that. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. Every single I'm not is a creation. Okay. Oh, God. Love Are there any limits to this? Absolutely. We are unlimited. We have no ceiling. The capabilities and the talents and the gifts and the power that is within every single individual on this planet is unlimited.
0: That is an inspiring and an empowering message. But if we're thinking about the possibility of believing that we could be getting younger rather than older, we must confront the possibility of overconfidence. That is to say, more faith in ourselves are our possibilities, or chances for um, obtaining greater youth than reality can possibly justify. There are basically three ways in which psychologists have studied overconfidence. Overestimation is thinking that you're better than you are. Overplacement is the exaggerated belief that you're better than others and over is the excessive faith that you know the truth. Some examples of overestimation include the tendency to overestimate the speed at which we'll get work done. If this affects you the way it affects me, it shows up on a to-do list on which I've committed to do more work for others than I possibly have hours in the day. It's easy to imagine I'll have time to accomplish this task in three or four or six months when I'll have plenty of time. And of course, when that obligation arrives, you're just as busy as you were at the time you made it and you curse yourself for having committed to doing too much. The evidence suggests that government planners underestimate the expense and overestimate the speed of completion of public works projects Um, Many uh, uh, private corporate developments also fall victim to the planning fallacy. Um, It would be a surprising software development project that didn't go past deadline and over budget. And often people behave as if they have more control than they actually do. In this simple example, this person clearly has a very high estimation of his ability and at least in this one circumstance appears to have overestimated it. Overplacement is about the excessive faith that we're better than others. Perhaps the best cited finding in this literature is Ola Svensson's 1981 finding that 93% of American drivers believe that they're better than the median driver. Cameron Lavallo have argued that if potential entrepreneurs think that they're better than the incumbents or other potential entrants, that might explain enthusiastically high rates of entry, intense competition, and then subsequent high rates of failure, what we observe in in many entrepreneurial entry markets. And if you ask professional engineers, and sadly, yes, even college professors, on average, they will claim to be better than average. It's true, of course, in a variety of professions. And although there may be some circumstances, maybe you're thinking of some, in which The belief that you're better than others could be a self-fulfilling prophecy. I would just note that there are also some circumstances in which that belief can be a self-negating prophecy where the very belief that you are the best can impair your chance of winning a competition. The third variety of overconfidence is what I've called over-precision. That is the excessive faith that you know the truth. This manifests itself in overly narrow confidence intervals. When psychologists ask people to indicate their uncertainty in some quantitative estimate by offering a 90% confidence interval around a best guess, those 90% confidence intervals include the truth often less than 50% of the time, suggesting people have drawn their intervals too narrowly, behaved as if they're more sure than they deserve to be that they have the right estimate of whatever it is that they're estimating. When clinical psychologists and physicians make this mistake, they will gravitate toward a favored diagnosis too quickly and spend too little time considering the alternative or testing alternative hypotheses. We often tend to be too sure we know how our friends and loved ones will behave. And when CIA analysts make this mistake forecasting, they can can get our nation into a great deal of trouble. It is common for us to put a great deal of faith in our own accuracy, even when the stakes are very high. Sometimes our faith in ourselves is justified, but not always. You're probably thinking of circumstances in which there could be performance benefits associated with greater confidence. My colleagues and I thought so too. So Jen Log and Liz Tenney and I set out to identify the circumstances under which greater confidence improved performance. We began by asking our research participants those domains that they thought confidence was most likely to be helpful for performance. And among other things, they told us they thought confidence would be helpful on taking tests like math tests. So we devised an experiment to put their predictions to the test. We gave a number of research participants a math test, and we manipulated their confidence. Some were led to believe that they would do well on the test. Others were led to believe that they shouldn't expect to do particularly well. Let me just note parenthetically how this, how important this manipulation is. In day-to-day life, we observe correlations between confidence and performance all the time. And empirically, it is often the case that the confident around us perform better. More confident athletes are more likely to win. More confident political candidates are more likely to get elected. But if there's a reason for their confidence that is based on their actual ability or performance at the polls, then we should be skeptical of the causal role of confidence in influencing their subsequent performance. Rather than a correlation, what we need is an experimental manipulation that varies confidence while holding all else constant. And that is what we attempted to do in this experiment, where we led people to believe, randomly assigned to get a message, increasing or decreasing their confidence in their subsequent performance. Of course, after we told them to expect to do well, those people who are taking the test did go into the test expecting to do better than those who are in the low confidence condition. Crucially, we also had a separate sample that was randomly assigned to play the role of observers. They were predicting how those who actually had the experience of taking the test would perform. We told them about the whole setup. We're running an experiment. Some people were randomly assigned to get an encouraging message, increasing their confidence. Others were randomly assigned to a condition in which they got a discouraging message to reduce their confidence. How do you think they're gonna perform? And we paid them more based on how they predicted, based on the accuracy of their prediction. So if they were accurate, they stood to gain more money. Again, there were some in the experience condition, those are uh, the results on the right side of the figure on your screen. And those in the prediction condition, they were just betting on how the experiencers would actually perform. The results show that the predictors were ready to put their money on those with high confidence. They, like most people, believed in the benefits of greater confidence for performance on this math test. What did we actually observe? No difference. Our message didn't matter, it didn't affect the performance of people in the confidence condition. It didn't increase the performance of those who came in expecting to do well. That made us wonder whether a math test really allowed the optimist the best opportunity to shine and whether we might try other tasks. So we did. We tried trivia quizzes. We tried other sorts of cognitive tests. We tried tests of athletic ability and physical endurance and boring vigilance tasks. In none of these could we identify an actual effect of confidence on performance, even though in every circumstance, those assigned to the prediction condition were ready to bet on those with greater confidence. Well, even if there isn't a performance benefit to greater confidence, I've wondered whether there are social settings in which other people or market incentives create an interest in expressing greater confidence, and it's easy to think on this—the night of the first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden—that there are, in fact, circumstances in which the display of confidence can earn us credibility with others. He can do
2: it like me. Nobody, nobody can do it like. Me. Nobody's stronger than me. Nobody has better toys than I do. There's nobody bigger or better at the military than I am. Nobody loves the Bible more than I do. Nobody builds walls better than me. Nobody's better to people with disabilities than me. Nobody's fighting for the veterans like I'm fighting for the veterans. There's nobody that's done so much for equality as I am. There's nobody more pro-Israel than I am. There's nobody more conservative than me. There's nobody that respects women more than I do. Nobody would be tougher on ISIS. Than Donald Trump. Nobody's ever had crowds like Trump has had. There's nobody that understands the horror of nuclear better than me. But nobody even understands it but me. It's called devaluation, the sale of the uranium, that nobody knows what it means. I know what it means. Nobody knows more about trade than me. Nobody knows the game better than I do. But in the history of this country has ever known so much about infrastructure as Donald Trump. I know the H-1B, I know the H-2B. Nobody knows it better than me. Nobody knows politicians better than I do. Nobody knows more about taxes than I do. Nobody knows more about debt than I do. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why
0: I alone can fix it. And if your reaction to that is to note, maybe it seems to be working out okay for Donald Trump, I would note the circumstances in life in which there are real benefits to being well calibrated in how much you can achieve and what your real talents are. Before you attempt to jump this crevasse, it would be mighty useful to know whether you're actually going to make it. And if you're the guy who's tied to the one jumping the crevasse, you definitely want to know whether he's going to make it. Let's return to William James for a moment and think about his Alpine adventure in his attempt to jump the crevasse. If we take William James' premise that his belief in himself helps him get farther, then I still think there might be room to question his assertion that it's always better to believe in yourself. If... His belief in himself allowed him to get an extra foot across the crevasse, to jump a six-foot gap rather than just a five-foot gap if he were apprehensive and self-doubting. Well, if the gap were actually six feet across, he should utter some self-affirmations, do some power posing, and go for it. But if the gap were seven or 10 or 20 feet, then... Jumping to his death, even if it displayed an admirable faith in his own abilities, seems sort of like a mistake. Always believing in yourself no matter what raises the possibility that you take undue risks, that you undertake tasks or challenges or ventures or business opportunities that will not turn out very well. And there are, of course institutions and organizations placed to exploit our errors when it comes to optimism about the future. I was amused to find this report by the National Lottery of the United Kingdom on optimism. If you're going to keep selling your customers negative expected value bets, you would very much like them to continue to believe in their possibility of winning the lottery, even when its odds are vanishingly small. In fact, by being too confident by having too much faith in yourself, you can set yourself up for failure. The students in my class who are most sure that they're going to ace the exam and therefore think they don't need to study are not those that get the best grades. Those who undertake risky activities, including big wave surfing, have to be keenly aware of their own limitations and the risks that they're subjecting themselves to. In the words of big wave surfer Brett Lickle, as soon as you think, I got this place wired. I'm the man. You're about 30 minutes away from being pinned on the bottom for the beating of your life. And of course, as a leader, there are so many ways in which your confidence can put others at risk. While Donald Trump was displaying admirable confidence in the United States' ability to withstand a global pandemic wrought By the novel coronavirus assuring Americans it would go away like a miracle, that everything was under control, that they didn't need to wear masks or protect themselves. Of course, infection rates in the U.S. have gone up and up and up and up and we have been laid low by the virus and we've been affected more severely than many other countries in the world. In this cartoon, the surgeons say, we lose a little dexterity but we gain a lot of confidence there are good reasons to question whether that's a good trade-off. In my classes at UC Berkeley, I attempt to help my students get better calibrated in their self-confidence. I give tests that are different than the sorts of tests they've had before. I invite them, for instance, to indicate how confident they are that they have answered a question correctly. Instead of on multiple choice tests, identifying the one answer they think is most likely to be right, I ask them to report their confidence that they've selected the right answer and then score them such that it's in their interest to be accurate in estimating the probability that they are right. When my students tell me that they are 100% sure that they have correctly identified the right answer on my test, they are in fact correct only 89% of the time. When they report a confidence between 90 and 99%, on average that works out to about 93% because a lot of their reports are at 90%, they are in fact only right about 76% of the time. Average across all the answers on my exams and the rate at which they're correct, on average, my students in the past have been 95% sure that they're right. In fact, only correct 85% of the time. I went looking for circumstances with higher stakes than the tests in my class and found this, a game show, a million-dollar money drop. Let me play you a short clip from it.
3: This million dollars, this million dollars as of right now, is yours. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. So The question is, how long can you hang on to it? In order to do that, you're going to have to give us the correct answers to seven multiple choice questions. Each of these four drops will represent a possible answer to those questions, only one of which is the correct answer. Now, the rules are very simple. You must risk all of your money on every single question. But if you're not certain of the answer, you can play it safe and place your money on more than one drop. However, you must always leave one drop clear. Put your money on the wrong answer, and it drops. It's gone forever. Whatever money you have left over at the end of the seven questions is yours to keep. Are you ready? Yes! $1 million. I've got seven questions. Let's play the million-dollar money drop. Sports equipment. Tom Hanks films. Tom don't know a lot about sports equipment. How many Tom Hanks do you know I a lot. Do sports equipment? I do. I want sports equipment. I want sports equipment. We're going to go for sports equipment. Sports equipment? Yes. equipment. Right. This is all on him though. All on him. The four possible answers are A, NBA Basketball, B, NFL Football, C, MLB Baseball, and D, NHL Hockey Football. And the question is, which of these is the heaviest? Talk it over. Okay, I am going to roll out basketball. Yes, I would say it's the biggest, it's the most obvious answer. I have never felt a hockey puck, have you? I have not felt a hockey I would puck, I but it my smashes bed, things. My gut is a hockey puck. 60 is seconds it? on the I clock, and it's moving today. now. I want you okay. to a hockey puck. All right, let's step up and see what drops. <laughs> Which of these is the heaviest? If it's A or B, we're done. If it's C, Major League Baseball. You've got $400,000 going into question three. And if it's the hockey puck, you've got $600,000 into question three. Good luck.
0: If you look across all seasons of the show that my research assistants and I have been coding, what you see is that when contestants attach 100% comp, when they put 100% of their money on one of the options, It is, in fact, the right answer, only 83% of the time, averaged across all rounds and contestants and seasons of the show, confidence, the percentage of money attached to the favorite answer, 81%, and contestants are only right about that 69% of the time. In other research, my uh, colleagues and I have examined the hit rate for political forecasts, So uh, election polls are released with confidence intervals. Those 95% confidence intervals actually include the result of the election only about 60% of the time when the poll is conducted the week before the election. The further you go out from the election, the less accurate they are. It's also the case that key economic forecasts forecasts that are collected by the Philadelphia Federal Reserve Bank from chief economists or organizations around the United States that my work with Sandy Campbell at UC Berkeley suggests those forecasts are overconfident that economists act as if they're more sure than they deserve to be that they know what's going to happen with obvious risks to the Fed's development of wise monetary policy anticipating the future economy and devising policy that will help bring about the best outcomes. Every organization, not just the Fed, has to forecast the future to plan production runs, to decide how much staff they need to hire, to rent office space. Any number of key decisions depend on forecasts of the future. What I'm sharing with you here is the results of a study that I conducted with a multinational that realized they had a problem with forecasting. They did forecasting the way just about every organization does. When it came to forecasting future sales of the commodity products that were their bread and butter, they went to the product managers most familiar with each of those products and asked, what are sales going to be next quarter? They based their production runs on the estimates from those product managers. But they were just making point prediction forecasts. That's crazy. It's not going to be that number. How many Teslas are going to sell next quarter? How many iPhones are going to sell next year? You can't estimate that number. The best you can do is a probability distribution. So we began our work with this multinational firm by asking about the distribution. 100% of forecast quantity centered this graph you see in front of you. Then we asked, how likely is it that sales will be close to your forecast? That is 90 to 110% of your best guess. The product managers told us they thought there was a little less than the 30% chance that sales would fall that close to their estimate. That by itself is a revelation. Really useful information. The red bars indicate what the product managers told us about the likely distribution of sales for their products. The blue bars show what actually happened. So the product managers estimated less than 2% probability that sales would fall less than 30% of their best guess. In fact, that happened over 17% of the time. So that looks like optimism. But it's also the case that they didn't think there was a very good chance that sales would be almost double, greater than 170% of their best guess forecast. In fact, that happened way more frequently than they expected it to. Most of what we observe in the results on your screen is that the red distribution is much tighter. The product managers are more sure than they deserve to be that they knew what was going to happen. Meaning that too often the company produced either too much or too little relative to actual demand, winding up with a warehouse full of unsold product or a bunch of angry customers who couldn't get the product that they had ordered. Even getting a little bit better at forecasting would be enormously beneficial to individuals, to companies, and to nations. And the first step there is being appropriately calibrated in our confidence in how sure we can be that we actually know what's going to happen in the future. So how confident should you be? Well, you should believe in yourself when confidence leads to success. Dare to undertake bold projects and risky bets with positive expected values. I wouldn't want my admonition to avoid overconfidence to be taken as advice that you should always lower your confidence. Overconfidence is common as i've attempted to show with some of the research results i've shared but underconfidence is real it occurs most often with estimation and placement when a task is hard people are prone to think that they're worse than others especially when others challenges aren't visible to us if you ever had the experience of starting a new job Starting a new program, a challenging program at a difficult college or university, maybe an advanced degree where you're suddenly with a whole bunch of smart people and in an environment that's new and unfamiliar to you, studying topics where you feel uncertain. You will be tempted to fall victim to the imposter syndrome where you suspect you're not good enough. Errors of underconfidence our mistakes just as much as overconfidence. Whereas overconfidence leads to errors of commission, where we enter competitions or undertake challenges at which we will fail, underconfidence leads to errors of omission, where we fail to take advantage of opportunities. We shy away from investments. We don't enter races. We're afraid to ask to reach out to that attractive stranger or say hi to someone who's a potential friend. Those errors are real, and we can avoid making them by better calibrating our confidence and believing in the truth, being more accurate in our assessments of ourselves. If you suspect you're not good enough, that you don't have what it takes to succeed in the program or at the job, consider gathering more information. Talk to others whose challenges may be invisible to you. Talk to those who've risen through the organization and have uh, experienced the challenges that you're suffering with. They may be able to share with you their struggles early on in a way that will help debias your underconfidence. Don't waste your time and energy on futile projects, however. Fooling yourself into being more confident when your confidence outstrips your actual abilities, if it prompts you to leap into a chasm that's wider than you can cross, qualifies as a mistake. You are optimally confident. You are perfectly confident when your beliefs match reality, when you correctly understand your talents, your skills, your past performance, and your future potential. The evidence suggests that well-calibrated confidence can help make us better decision-makers, better investors, better colleagues, better friends, and better partners. What we value in ourselves, what we value in employees, what we value in our leaders, and what we value in our spouses is well-calibrated self-insight that allows them to maximize their potential but avoid getting themselves into trouble by falsely believing in mistaken confidence and making bad decisions as a result. I'll wrap it up here and just thank you for your attention. I'll put my email address there in case you wanna argue with me about confidence and uh, toot my own horn mentioning that my book, Perfectly Confident, is available everywhere. I'm sure that many of you have questions for me as that have grown out of my presentation, I would uh, be delighted to uh, hear some of your questions. Patrick, I hope that um, you've got some of those, and um, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts, concerns, questions, and uh, some of the perspectives that um, our viewers and listeners are sharing.
1: Well, okay. Well, thank you very much, Doctor. That was absolutely wonderful. And for those people who do have questions for Dr. Moore, uh, you know, you can use the text chat feature uh, and as time allows, he will answer your questions and you do have his contact information as well. I don't think he's going anywhere. Um, Before we get on that, I was, while I was listening to your talk, which was absolutely wonderful. I was thinking of the digress just a little bit, you know, Carl Sagan, who was kind of one of my, one of my heroes. um, uh, He had, you know, he had, Just four rules for critical thinking, and I just wondered your reaction to them. One was, whenever possible, there must be independent confirmation of the facts. Uh, Another one was, uh, encourage substantial debate on the issue by knowledgeable proponents of all points of view. And uh, arguments from authority, they really don't carry a lot of weight because authorities are often wrong. I think we saw a particularly noteworthy authority in one of your video clips about Thirty-five minutes ago, and to come up with more than one hypothesis, you know, um, uh, I wonder your reaction. That's good
0: advice based yeah. on good psychology. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Thank you. Um, if I may, a few a few responses to that. So the the evidence suggests that one of the best general purpose debiasing tools, not just for diffusing our tendency to believe too strongly in Our our own knowledge, but any number of other biases to which human judgment is vulnerable, is to ask yourself why you might be wrong. That's, Sagan articulated that as coming up with alternative hypotheses. Consider the possibility that that you're not right that there's another possibility that you should be considering or entertaining. And then you really want to honestly gather the information that would allow you to assess that hypothesis. That's what's going to help you get closer to the truth.
1: Yep. And I want to just use one little personal anecdote. When I rolled in my doctoral program, we had like a three-day orientation with our you know, our cohort, where there's about 20 of us. And on the first day, the per- we were in a half circle, and the professor was in, in front of us. Uh, And he said, look to the person on your right and look to the person on your left. One of those people will have dropped out of the doctoral program before you graduate. And so I looked at the left and it was a full professor at a small liberal college in the Midwest. The one on the right was uh, a woman who had a very high position in the Department of Education in Hawaii. And I thought, the only way I can beat these guys is if I just work harder than they did. And as it happened, it was the the big shot in Hawaii who dropped out. So but when you brought that up, I remembered that. I thought I can outwork them. Maybe they're smarter than me, but they won't work as hard as me. So so hard work does pay off.
0: Indeed, indeed. And understanding when it will pay off is very useful for calibrating our confidence. So always believing in yourself, the notion that um, simple persistence will always win the day. No, trying harder will not allow you to leap tall buildings in a single bound. However, in your case, it really did pay off. Sustaining your belief and and affirming the fact that your faith was well placed.
1: I should mention the two people I was talking about already had doctor degrees, but they were interested in getting one in clinical psychology. So they had had a head start on (laughs) it. So, uh, you know, um, and I'm glad you brought up the Carl Sagan, the If you wouldn't mind just extemporaneously talking for a few minutes about critical thinking, because particularly we've got a big election coming up soon, a little advice on critical thinking would be quite helpful.
0: Yeah, thanks for that encouragement. So in my classes, I talk a lot about critical thinking. The benefits of second-guessing ourselves and relying on formal decision-making tools to... Counteract some of the biases to which human judgment is vulnerable. Our intuitions are useful in many aspects of decision making, but are imperfect as guides to rationality. There are so many ways in which human intuition may overweight salient or emotionally evocative information, may make assumptions about cause and effect, wanting cause and effect to be similar to each other, misunderstanding chance, failing to appreciate regression to the mean, neglecting base rates, and any one of a number of biases documented in research by psychology, cognitive psychologists like Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman and uh, then brought into the field of management, organizational behavior, and economics by people like Max Bazerman and Richard Thaler. So the willingness to doubt our own intuitions and to gather more systematic evidence, whether that comes in the form of actually computing the probabilities of the outcomes that we care about, studying their base rates, looking back at history and understanding how likely they actually are, making our decisions based on expected values, using those probabilities combined with our estimation of the valuation of the outcomes to help guide decisions. Tools like decision trees for helping structure our decisions. These are very useful for helping make more rational decisions. But one of the ways in which critical thinking goes most tragically wrong when it comes to the high stakes decisions around politics that we're facing in this election season has to do with what psychologists like Jonathan Barron have called my side bias. The tendency to exert excessive, excessively critical and suspicious thought for the opinions and perspectives expressed by one's political opponents or people on the other side of the partisan divide and be insufficiently critical of the positions advocated by those on one's own side. It's easy to trace some of the psychological quirks that predispose us to want to believe in our in-group and want to protect ourselves or fight against those that we perceive in the out-group that might threaten or attack us. And that sort of division, that sort of partisan split is so corrosive in a democracy where we have to be willing to accept election outcomes and where constructive progress depends so fundamentally on collaboration with our political rivals in order to find wise compromises and get work done that serves the nation well, even if it is not clearly a partisan benefit one way or the other. I think that that is a challenge that our nation is struggling with mightily at this point, where the my side bias is as strong as it's ever been, and our suspicion and dislike of people on the other side of the political spectrum is corrosive to our ability to work together.
1: Yes, well, thank you. That's very good. There was a question about just the the massive number of books that purport to teach somebody that self confidence you can win it all you can be anything i found it particularly interesting that somebody was that somehow you could actually will yourself to become younger that would
0: hurt. uh-huh it's a nice idea isn't it
1: <laughs> i might have to follow up on that one <laughs>
0: <laughs> tell me how that works out for you
1: yes i will. <laughs> i will do that but maybe it's an overly well it's not a simplistic question it was a reasonable question why do you think people buy those books. I mean, as a psychologist myself, I I doubt that the research that supports their beliefs is very, very substantial. What do you think the big attraction is?
0: Yeah, I would see its attraction uh, at least on two dimensions. One is that it feels good to be confident, even if it's not in your long-term interest. Chocolate cake tastes good in the moment, but to eat exclusively chocolate cake is not uh, a good health policy. And to believe that more confidence is better is obviously problematic. You can be too confident and it can get you into trouble. Uh, in, In my book, I tell a number of stories, including circumstances when I have fallen prey to the siren song of confidence, believing too much in myself and running headlong into a brick wall that better sense would have let me anticipate was going to get in my way. So it just feels good to believe in yourself. And that is part of the allure of that message. But I think it's also easy, as I implied in my talk, to confuse correlation for causation and to see that confidence is associated with success in so many aspects of life and conclude, well, I want to be more confident. It'll help me succeed. In fact, the evidence for that link, as I suggested, is awfully weak. It is correlated in many circumstances, but there's usually a simple explanation for that. And that is that the politicians and business people and athletes The confident ones who succeed, well, they had good reason to be confident. They knew a little bit about their own strengths, their polling, their market potential, and that that is a more parsimonious, a simpler explanation for both their confidence and their success.
1: Well, and with my circumstances, I was intimidated intimidated by the two very substantially successful people sitting on either side of me on my first week of doctoral studies. My confidence was that I could work harder than anybody else. (sighs) And that would make up for it. I do have a question for you here. Just a moment, please. Well,
0: while you're while you're working on that, let me just make a note. While I've been critical of the boosterist message in the self-help literature, literature that you should be more confident, um, I, I do think that it has a place. I acknowledge the real risk of underconfidence, and it it, it affects many people. And if believing in yourself helps you avoid the mistake of shying away from competitions or taking risks that would have been successful, well, that's great. Then you should subscribe to that message. You should believe in yourself because it'll make you better off to avoid the error of underconfidence.
1: Yep, that's a good point. Here's the question. Um, I'm going to read it. It's on my phone. Uh, Dr. Moore, in anticipation of the 2020 presidential election, can pollsters pollsters learn from their predictive failure during the 2016 election? Now, there's a poser for you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I already made reference to, to my research examining polls and the limitations in their accuracy. A few thoughts on that. Polls overestimate their accuracy because they rely on a statistical calculation to compute their confidence intervals that assumes the only source of error is sampling error. That is, for the poll, they sample a subset of the population, and there's a possibility that they oversample some groups and undersample others, and so the poll result is not representative of the voting population at large. The statistics have a harder time quantifying other sort other um, sources of error. And of course there are some. The people who the pollsters can get a hold of to elicit their opinions are not exactly the same ones who are going to the polls to vote. So there will be systematic error that way. But because quantifying that systematic error is hard, the statistical calculations usually neglect those other sources of error. And there's a parallel there to the way that so many of us wind up too sure of ourselves because we have failed to consider the ways in which we might be wrong. We are like statistical models that are that consider too few sources of error. One source of error for your political beliefs might, for instance, be the fact that your source of information is too limited. Those prognosticators, pundits, and forecasters making predictions of the 2016 election, in retrospect, had to confront the fact that they had access to selective information. They were too sure that Hillary Clinton would win because the people that they knew, that they affiliated with, that they were talking to, that they were reading in the papers and magazines and books, those were people who were more likely to be Clinton supporters. The people who wound up voting for Donald Trump were less likely to be in the orbits of the thought leaders who were forecasting. And it's that's part of why the forecasts were so off. But there's another thing worth noting. Nate Silver took a great deal of heat for um, forecasting a Clinton victory with 70% probability ahead of the 2016 election. And he defended himself rightly by noting I gave Trump a 30% chance of winning. There is the tendency to oversimplify a probabilistic belief by choosing, by identifying which side of maybe it's on, such that if you say Clinton with 51% chance, then you're treated as if you said Clinton with 100% probability. And that's just not right. Honestly, confronting our uncertainties must open the open our hearts to thinking about the the future as probabilities as a probability distribution and when you say seventy percent chance that something's going to happen, well, thirty percent of the time it ain't going to happen. And accepting probabilistic forecasts means accepting that you will be on the wrong side of maybe with some frequency. If you look at Nate's, the calibration of Nate Silver's forecasts across a larger sample, which you'd need in order to assess his calibration, he does pretty well. Yeah, he has some explanations for why he why his forecasts were an error that are intimately connected with why so many polls and forecasts were in error in 2016. But overall, Nate Silver's calibration is pretty good. Thank
1: you. We have another question here for you. Just a moment. How large a role do brain development, such as executive functioning and brain chemistry play in critical reasoning and calibrating confidence?
0: Wow. It's an interesting question. Um... I would say, so with regards to brain development, I've seen in my children, their greater willingness to entertain the uncertainties associated with probabilistic thinking as they've grown older. So many of us are prone to simplifying the world into fr- from a range of probabilities to 100% and 0%. There's, there's a middle stage of intermediate sophistication where we can handle 50-50 as maybe uh, and simplify the rest of the spectrum into 100 and zero. Getting better at accepting the uncertainty in our beliefs and in the world means accepting the gradations on that scale. Annie Duke, the poker player turned decision strategist, uh, whose wonderful book, Thinking in Bets, has been so influential in, in uh, my approach to the subject of de bias and confidence, says that the difference between the poker pros and the amateurs is that the pros can tell the difference between a 60 40 bet and a 40 60 bet, which is to say they're sensitive to gradations in probability across the scale. And that's really crucial for making wiser decisions in the face of an uncertain future they're often accepting that sort of uncertainty can feel bad. It's nice to believe that we know what's going to happen. And that is part of why people gravitate towards certainty, even when it's a false certainty, and have a, an unfortunate tendency to seek out leaders who express greater confidence as if they know what's going to happen, even when we should be deeply skeptical of their ability to know such things. But if would-be leaders know that their potential supporters are paying attention to confidence, then we can get in this dysfunctional arms race where leaders want each one wants to express more confidence than the other one. And inevitably the one who we wind up, uh, elevating to office, it has expressed overconfidence in their campaign for that post.
1: Okay. Well, you know, we have a few minutes left. Uh, perhaps you could pass on a little bit of advice to, you've got a very large crowd watching this, by the way, all virtually. Perhaps you could spend four or five minutes just kind of wrapping up and and providing a little wisdom to all of us.
0: Thank you for that generous invitation. I'll say a few words about why I've called overconfidence the mother of all biases. Here I'm channeling Daniel Kahneman, who called overconfidence the engine that drives the economy. When asked if there were one bias that he would like most to get rid of, he named overconfidence. And it led uh, Max Bazerman and I to refer to overconfidence as the mother of all biases in our textbook. The reason there is that overconfidence, being too sure of ourselves, can serve as a gateway bias that makes us vulnerable to all sorts of other errors, mistakes, and foibles. If, on the other hand, we're well calibrated about our vulnerability to error, if we're willing to ask why we're wrong, if we're willing to consider the advice of others, and to combine that fairly with our own flawed perspectives, it can increase the accuracy of the judgments that we come to subsequently. There are some business leaders who've given voice to organizational cultures that encourage everyone within an organization to do this. So Reed Hastings at Netflix or um, at uh, Bridgewater Associates, building in a structure an organizational culture of radical truth and radical transparency, where employees are encouraged to question each other in order such that they might wind up closer to the truth. As a nation, we could get so much better at being willing to ask ourselves and each other, why might you be wrong? Why might I be wrong? In how can we listen to each other in order to arrive closer to the truth? I mentioned Annie Duke, and one of the ways in which poker players help debias each other's overconfidence is by asking, "Want to bet?" So when a poker player makes some assur- make some claim that others are skeptical of, they will often be challenged, "Want to bet?" That invites them to put their money where their mouths are, to commit to a specific falsifiable claim with stakes on it. That is very useful for calibrating confidence. I had many friends, well-intended, kind friends, who when I was preparing for my book launch assured me, oh, it's going to do great. You're going to wind up on the bestseller list for sure. And when they said that, I appreciated them trying to be nice, but was also keenly aware of how rare it is for a first-time author like me to make it on the bestseller list with a book like this one. And so I responded to their encouragement by saying, want to bet? And I was able to place a few hedging bets with friends who um, put some money down and allowed me to enjoy a hedge. So a word about what what I mean by that. So um, I was betting against myself. They were betting on my success. If my book were to sell gangbusters, if I were to stay on top of the New York Times bestseller list for years, then i could enjoy that success and i would be happy to pay my friends the money that it would that would come with losing my bet on the other hand if i'm not making bestseller royalty payments at least i can have the consolation prize of my friend justin's money there are plenty of opportunities where if someone is placing overconfident uh is overconfident of your success you can place a hedging bet with them inviting them Want to bet. But there are lots of other circumstances in life when you can challenge someone on their beliefs, testing how much they really believe the assurances they're giving you. In business negotiations, sometimes the way this plays out is with what's called a contingent contract, wherein the other side makes some uh, fantastic claim about the value of the deal that they're offering you or how rich you're going to get investing in their startup. If you say wanna bet, that might open the way for you to make a deal whose value is contingent on the outcomes that they're promising. So they think the value of their firm is gonna double within 10 years, okay. Well, you can adjust your bet such that um, they wind up uh, betting on what they believe is gonna happen and you can benefit from your skepticism of that where you own a greater percentage of their company if its value after 10 years is less than they think it is, for instance. So there are many opportunities in life where we can help inform and debias each other with questions like wanna bet.
1: That was a, actually that was a, a wonderful measure, summation, Dr. Uh, professor. I want to, we're pretty much out of time. Out of time. I, I want to thank you that very much. That was much a very illuminating very talk, talk, talk entertaining very entertaining too. I, On a personal level, I, personal I enjoyed level, the videos. So <laughs> there you go. Um, uh, and we have run, so run out of time, time, time. And so I want to so thank everybody who tuned in for this for joining us. Please consider the... Uh, commonwealth club gala which is on october 16th you can get information from that on the website and i particularly want to thank you doctor it was absolutely wonderful talk and i wish everybody a very pleasant good evening good night
0: you've been listening to the commonwealth club of california hear thousands of our podcasts on apple podcasts google play and stitcher if you like what you've heard please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you